continuing. We're going to be continuing this morning in Revelation uh, chapter 11. But I want to say a couple things before we, before we get there. You can go ahead and open there if you want to. But let's think about Revelation and what we've been looking at for the past several weeks. This is the seventh trumpet, okay? It's also the third woe. So if you remember, uh, back earlier in the book of Revelation, there were seven seals, right? And as John opened up each of those seals, different things were revealed. And when he got to the seventh seal, seven trumpets emerged. And there's seven trumpets. And so we looked at the first four trumpets. And then uh, there was the announcement that the last three trumpets would also be wo three woes. And so we uh, talked about the fifth trumpet. And then last week, the sixth trumpet, or the fifth trumpet, the sixth trumpet. Then uh, last week, there was an uh, interlude. Last couple of weeks was a little interlude. And now we're to the seventh trumpet. Okay? And we're when we read what the seventh trumpet says uh, today, or what's announced after the blowing of the seventh trumpet, um, and we continue in our study of Revelation, we're going to see that there are also seven bowls that are going to come up in, the, in, in future chapters. Okay? And so as we think about this, we shouldn't think about these things as, as chronological, one after the other, okay? Let's read, uh, let's read Revelation 11, starting in verse 15, and, and then I'm going to say a, a few more things about that. So verse 15 says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. As we think about this, uh, and as you just heard that, you may have caught that a lot of those verbs are in the past tense, as if these things have already happened, right? John's looking into the future, but he's speaking of it in the past tense, as if it's already happened. And, and that's because these things are not, uh, are not presented to us chronologically. It's not like, as we look at history, the, the, first, uh, the, the seals will happen first, and then the trumpets will happen, and then the bowls will happen. Um, they're not chronological in time. They're chronological in the time that John saw them. Right? So he saw the, the seals first, and then he saw the trumpets, and then he saw the, uh, the he'll, he'll see the bowls. And so when he's looking here, the seventh trumpet blows, and John's looking, from his perspective, these things have already happened, because he's looking at them as if they are already occurring, or have already occurred, and, and yet they haven't occurred yet in, in history. Okay? Another thing for us to think about is that these these, these, uh, these three cycles of seven, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, are, are really the same thing, okay? And so John's getting these, these visions, getting this, uh, God's, God's revealing the, the future to him, um, revealing the history of the world to him, but he's doing it in cycles, okay? And so the first seven seals tell the story of, of history, 
And then the first seven trumpets tell the, that same story of history, but in a little different way, a little fuller way. And then we'll see the seven bowls uh, that are, again, going to repeat that, that same material, but in a little bit different way, uh, sometimes adding material that's not in the other, uh, in the other, um, in, in the other scenes, okay? So these things are not necessarily chronological. Uh, these things are chronological in, in, in the way that John has seen them, but not necessarily the way they're playing out in, in history. They're repeating much of the same material as we go, okay? One other thing I want us to think about, uh, you can listen or you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, this is a passage that, that many of you, many of us are probably familiar with. Starting in verse 9, Jesus says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, of course, you probably recognize that as the Lord's Prayer, or maybe, maybe a better name is the model prayer as Jesus is teaching his disciples uh, how to pray. When I was growing up, uh, the church that I was a member of, we would uh, repeat the Lord's Prayer together every single week. Even when I was playing high school football, uh, before every game, uh, and maybe practice is too, I don't think practice, but, but, but for sure, before every game, our team would huddle up together in the locker room and, and we would recite the Lord's Prayer out loud together um, every, every single week. When Jesus... Uh, tells his disciples this prayer, gives his disciples this model of prayer. He's, he's doing a couple of things, okay? The first thing he's doing is he's teaching them, teaching us how to pray, okay? He's teaching us how to pray. He says in verse 5, don't pray like the hypocrites do. He said the hypocrites get in public and they make a big show of it, trying to impress people. He said don't be like the hypocrites. Instead, he says in verse 6, he says, you all go into private and, and, and pray to me in, in private where God hears and where God sees. Okay. The second thing is he tells them not to do, he says, don't pray like the Gentiles. In verse 7, he says, the Gentiles, they pray with big lofty words and, uh, and, and phrases, and, and he says, the Gentiles are trying to impress God. He said, don't be like that. Just pray with simple, honest, straightforward words and phrases because God knows what you need even before you ask. You don't have to impress God. He's already your father, right? So he says, don't pray like the hypocrites and don't pray like the Gentiles, he's telling them how to pray. But even more than that, I think in this model prayer, he's teaching us not just how to pray, but he's also teaching us what to pray for. Okay? He's teaching us what to pray for. So it's good for us to pray. When we pray, it's good for us to pray for, for other people. It, it is. It's good for us to pray for people's physical needs when, when people are sick or, or things like that. It's especially good for us to pray for people's spiritual needs, people that we that, that we know that maybe we're praying that God would save them or or uh, people that, that are uh, need encouragement in, in the Lord. Uh, those, those are things good to pray for. It's also good for us to pray for each other as we're, as we're uh, in, in ministry, right? We should be praying for our, our pastors regularly. We should be praying for missionaries regularly. On our prayer sheet that we pray through every Wednesday night, down at the bottom, it's got that list of missionaries that we support, right? Most of those missionaries, we don't support financially. The way that we support them, the primary way we support them is through prayer. And so we should be praying for them regularly, 
that, that, that's good to do. We should also be praying for each other as we share the gospel with, with our friends and family and as we uh, seek to meet other, uh, other needs that, that people might have. It's good to pray for these things. But in, in this model prayer, Jesus is teaching us that we should also be praying for God's purposes and for what God is doing. Okay? What he's doing in the world and for his purposes for history. Back in Revelation chapter 11, in this passage that we're looking at today, I think we're going to see God answering at least three specific parts of that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Okay? So our sermon this morning is going to have three points. Point number one is your kingdom come. Point number two is your will be done. And point number three is hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, hallowed be your name. Uh, one commentator named Barry Webb, he's, he's not even writing about Revelation. He's writing about Isaiah. I was reading a few weeks ago, but he, he says this. He says, the prayer for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done is a prayer for the end of the world. It's a prayer that we should never pray lightly. And, and yet Jesus teaches us to pray that prayer. We shouldn't pray it lightly, but we should pray it. So in chapter 11, verse 15, the angel blows his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Notice he says the kingdom of the world, right? Not the kingdoms of the world. He says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. There are only two kingdoms in the world, only two kingdoms in reality. We can think about different nations, and uh, even throughout the past history, we can think about different, uh, you know, different different kingdoms that were set up in, in the world. But really, really, when it comes down to it, there's only two kingdoms in reality: the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of Satan. When uh, when he talks about the kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ, the kingdom of the world, he means that that term refers to human society temporarily controlled by the powers of evil organized in opposition to God. That's how one commentator says it. Human society temporarily controlled by the powers of evil organized together in opposition to God. Back a few weeks ago, Pastor Jake was preaching through uh, Revelation chapter 9, and he made a point in that sermon that Satan often tries to counterfeit the things of God. We see that throughout the Bible. We see that throughout the, the ways that, that Satan acts throughout the Bible. He often tries to counterfeit the things of God, and he has a kingdom. Okay, we're going to see it's, he's not the rightful reign, the not, not the rightful ruler of that kingdom, but he has a kingdom. Throughout the Bible, he's called by different names. But some of those names he's called by as the ruler of the demons. He's also called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the prince of this world. And he's even called the God of this age. Satan has a kingdom, but he does not have a right to that reign. It's a counterfeit kingdom. He doesn't have a right to his reign. He's counterfeiting Jesus' rightful role. And his kingdom is not eternal. One day his kingdom will come to an end. And that's what we're reading about here in 
Revelation chapter 11. Establishing Jesus' throne and his reign, that's the plan that God has had for the last thousands of years. Since the very fall, since, since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and even before that, since the very beginning of creation even, God has had this purpose, God has had this plan that he's been working toward to establish his son Jesus as the king of the kingdom, the rightful ruler over his people, over all of creation. Perhaps this one verse, chapter 11, verse 15, where the kingdom is handed over to Jesus, established visibly as Jesus uh, takes his throne, perhaps this one verse is the most significant verse in the Bible. There are lots of verses in the Bible, lots of significant verses in the Bible. Of course, Jesus' death is, is important. Jesus' resurrection is important. I'm not necessarily saying that this verse is, is maybe the most important verse in the Bible, but perhaps it's the most significant verse in, in the whole Bible. This is the climax that all of history has been building to. One commentator says, uh, says this. He says, we see in verses 15 through 19 an explanation of the consummation of history. This is what God's been working toward. This is what God's been building toward throughout history. Okay? Now, there's a lot to say about this. Uh, we could go back in, into earlier parts of the Bible and see the Lord leading up to this, God's plan unfolding over time throughout history, starting in Genesis and working its way all the way through the Bible to Revelation. We could go back and look at lots of passages, and, and we'd be here a long time doing that. We don't have time to look at everything this morning. Uh, but I do want to look at just, a, just a, few, a few places where we see this kingdom building. Okay? And so we're going to kind of start in the middle of the story. Um, I'm going to ask you all to, to open up to Isaiah chapter 11, if you would. Isaiah chapter 11. Um, but even before that, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's this passage where David comes to, uh, to the prophet. David's the king of Israel. He's the king that has taken all the different clans, all the different tribes of Israel, and united them into one kingdom, and he's now the king of that kingdom. And he comes to the uh, prophet Nathan, and he says, Nathan, I want to build a temple for God. He says, I have this big palace that's made out of these cedars, and it's this nice, kingly, you know, regal palace, and we're still worshiping God in the tabernacle, in this tent. And so I want to build a temple for God. I want to build a permanent house for God. Okay? And at first, Nathan says, that's a great idea, David. Do that. But then Nathan sleeps on it that night, and, and the Lord comes to him in the night. And so the next day, he comes back to David and says, no, 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 don't do it. God said he doesn't want you to do that. And God said, you've been a warrior king, and, and, and for other reasons, he doesn't want you to be the one to build him a temple. He's going to let your son Solomon build him a temple, and we see that happen in the Bible. But he tells David, I don't want you to do that. And he says, in fact, I don't want you to build me a house, but he says, I'm going to build you a house. Now, David already had a house. He had this big, temp this, uh, this big uh, um, palace, this big palace that he was living in, right? But God says, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to establish you a house. And, and he's using kind of a play on words because he doesn't mean a physical house. He means a family. He says, I'm going to establish you. You're going to have a descendant on the throne forever. He says, your son's going to be on the throne forever. Okay? And so David had a son. David died. He had a son named Solomon. Solomon became king. And then Solomon died, and he had a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam became king. And, and Rehoboam was foolish, and so the, the kingdom was divided in, into two. You had the northern part of the kingdom and the southern part of the kingdom. 
and you had this succession of kings that, that came about. And so, you know, one king would die and the next king would take the throne and that king would die, the next king would take the throne. And so this dynasty is being established, just like God had promised. You will have a son on the throne forever. This dynasty is being established. And then we come to a point in history in, in, in 722 B.C., and this is when the, the northern part of the kingdom, Israel, was conquered by the Assyrians. And so there's no more nation of Israel that, that's gone. The northern part of the kingdom is gone. There are no more kings on the throne in Israel. That, that, that's gone. And we continue going throughout history another 150 years or so to, to 586 B.C. And that's when the Babylonians came along and they conquered the southern part of the kingdom, Judah. And so now there's no kingdom left. There are no kings left. Because there's not a throne, right? And so the people of Israel are thinking, God, what, what's going on here? God, you promised that we would have a kingdom that would be forever. You promised we would have a, a king on the throne, a descendant of David that would be on the throne forever. What in the world is going on, God? Well, look at Isaiah chapter 11. God's answering that question through Isaiah. He says this, uh, starting in verse 1. He says, then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse or from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse was David's dad, right? So he's thinking back to the same promise that he had made, that a descendant of David would be on the throne forever. Jesse's David's dad. So he's talking about that dynasty, okay? And he says there's going to be a shoot that's going to spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. He says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear. Listen to this. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Does that remind you of Psalm 2? He will crush them with a rod of iron, Psalm 2 says. Here it says he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Verse 5 says, also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. We don't have time to, to, to look into all that, but remember those two verses. Remember verses 4 and 5 when we get to Revelation chapter 19. But here, Isaiah is speaking, God's speaking through Isaiah, and he's saying, I haven't forgotten the promise I made to David. yes. The line of David's been cut off, right? The, the stump of David. Think of like a family tree that's been cut off, and it's just nothing up there but the stump, okay? And you've probably all seen a, a, a stump in a yard where a, a tree's been cut off, and it's just the dead stump that's left there. And yet Isaiah says a shoot is going to spring up from the stump of Jesse. This stump is dead, but Isaiah says new growth is going to come up out of it, Right? We've all seen that, probably a dead stump in a, in a, in a yard somewhere, and there's, you know, new, new growth coming up out of it. We can see like a little plant kind of coming up from, the, from, from what's left of the dead stump there. And Isaiah says that David's family tree is going to be this way. The dynasty that God promised David, he's going to have a king on the throne forever, reigning over his people. That promise hasn't been done away with. God's still going to keep that promise, even though it looks like it's not possible. How can there be a king on the throne when there is no throne? How can there be a king reigning over God's people when God's people have been conquered, destroyed, exiled, living in these other countries now? They're not even a people anymore. How can God have a king on the throne? How can God keep this promise 
Isaiah says that he's, that he's going to. Let's look at a couple more places. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. Or you can just listen if you don't want to turn there. Daniel's a few books past, uh, past Isaiah. Right before you get to Hosea is Daniel. Right after Ezekiel. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel's another prophet, and he gets this vision from the Lord. Look what he says, starting in verse 13. When he, when he mentions the Ancient of Days here, that's a reference to God the Father. Okay, So it says in verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there was one like a son of man coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, he came up to God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That sounds like what God said back in 2 Samuel. We didn't, I didn't read that to you, but that, that sounds like the promise God made to, to David back in 2 Samuel. You'll have a king on the throne forever. His kingdom will never end. And here Daniel sees in a vision God the Father in, in heaven, the Ancient of Days, and he sees this one coming who looks like a son of man, who looks like a human, looks like a person. And he's presented before God the Father, and God the Father gives him glory and gives him dominion and gives him power and might and establishes him as king over a kingdom that will last forever. A kingdom that will have no end. One last passage to pull it all together. Look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. This is the angel who came to Mary. Remember, Mary became pregnant. She was a virgin, became pregnant. She was very upset. The heading in, in my Bible says perplexed. She's thinking, what the heck's going on? Starting in verse 30, the angel came to her and said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Listen to verse 32. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made this promise to David. You'll have a king on the throne. You'll have a son on the throne forever. He's going to reign over your kingdom forever. If we look through history, it looks like God's not keeping that promise. The kings are cut off. The nation's cut off. There is no king on the throne anymore. And yet we see the prophets, Isaiah, God tells Isaiah, no, I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. I'm going to keep my promise. Daniel, he shows him this this one who's coming who looks like a son of man, this heavenly being, but he looks like a, a person, right? Jesus taking on humanity, Jesus taking on flesh, the incarnation, Jesus becoming human. And he's given a throne that will have no end and he will reign forever. This is what God's been working on. This is the plan that God has had in place throughout history and we see it coming to culmination in Revelation chapter 11. We see the final scene, the final climax of what God has been planning, what God has been working toward, what God has been doing throughout history.
We could go back to the very beginning of, of Genesis and we could see the seeds of this kingdom being established then as well. We don't have time to do all that today, but, but I'm telling you, God has been doing this, working this throughout history, little by little, person by person, family by family, and there's coming a day when he is going to establish it fully in his son Jesus. Now notice in, in Revelation, back in Revelation 11, notice he doesn't say there that uh, in, in verse uh, 15, he says the kingdom of this world, of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. I don't want to make a, a too much of a, of, a, of a big deal about this, but he says that it has been made the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ. It doesn't say uh, that, that it's something new or, or, or something that's, that's, that's beginning. This kingdom of the world has been transferred and now it is the kingdom of the Lord's. As I said before, Satan doesn't have a right to this kingdom, and it's always belonged to Jesus. Just now it's being fully revealed. In Matthew chapter 3, remember early on in Matthew's gospel, when John the Baptist is there preaching, getting ready for Jesus to come? You remember what John the Baptist was preaching? Matthew says he was preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? Why was the kingdom of God at hand? The kingdom of God was at hand because the king of God was at hand. The kingdom was coming because Jesus, the king, was coming. This has always been Jesus's kingdom. He's always had the right to it. But now he's going to be fully seen in history, the reality and the truth of who he is. God's been ruling his creation since the very first moment that it existed, and he hasn't stopped that, right? We call that providence. God's been in control. God's been working things for the good of his people, working things for the plan that he has. Just now we're going to see it in its fullness. This reign of God is going to be handed over visibly to Jesus, who will visibly then reign over the whole earth. We'll no longer have to dread or worry about death, our own death or the death of those that we love. We'll no longer have to fear evil, evil people or circumstances, violence and those that seek to do harm to us and others. We'll no longer have to suffer ungodliness and sin, our own sin, our own temptation or other sins that affect us. We'll no longer have to worry about anything, what we're going to eat, where we're going to live, how we're going to provide for those that we're responsible for. There's a famous quote in a, in a, uh, in a book, one of the Lord of the Rings books, the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy, I guess. There's a quote in one of the books where one of the main characters has died and then comes back to life and appears before this other character named Sam. And when he sees him, he's, he says something to the effect of, uh, he, he's astonished, he's amazed, he says, I thought you were dead. And he's, re he's happy, rejoicing that, that this, this friend of his is now alive. And, and he asks this question, he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? The Bible says that's exactly what's going to happen when Jesus returns. In Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve disobeying God. They eat from the tree they're not supposed to eat from. And, and, and them doing that, bringing sin into the world, affects every part of creation. Right? It affects how Adam and Eve relate to God. They're hiding from him now where he comes to, he, he comes to them and they're hiding in the garden because they're afraid, because they're naked. Remember that part? They never hid before they, they, they disobeyed. 
There's this division now between the people and other people, Adam and Eve. There's going to be uh, there's going to be friction in their relationship. There's going to be division and friction in every other part of creation as well. Adam is told he's going to have to work hard for food, where before he was in the garden, they could just eat whatever they wanted to other than the one tree they were told not to. Now they're going to have to work hard for their food. The ground itself is going to fight against them and, and grow weeds and thorns and those kind of things. Every part of creation has is, is, is been affected by sin. But when Jesus is fully established as the king of the universe, the king of creation, all these relationships are going to be reversed. Every effect that sin has had is going to be done away with. Every effect that, that, that sin has had on us and on creation is going to be undone. The whole creation, once again, will be very good, as God said it was at the end of the sixth day. Now, make no mistake, sin and death have already been defeated, but one day they're finally going to be removed. Jesus will reign over every part of creation. He will reign over all of creation. But he's also going to reign over every individual. At his name, the Bible says, every knee will bow, recognizing and submitting to his authority as the true king, whether we want to or not. So my question for you and, and, and for me right now, but my question for you right now is, which kingdom are you in? Which kingdom are you a member of? Have you submitted yourself to the Savior King Jesus? Or are you trying to rule over your own life and be the king of your own life? If you say that you're in Jesus' kingdom, then I have another, another question for you. Which kingdom do you live like you're in? Which kingdom do you live like you're in? In Titus chapter 1, verse 16, Paul talks about uh, some, some Christians there in the town of Titus. And he says, or some people who said they were Christians, he said they profess to know God with their mouths, but by their lifestyle they deny him. Believer, does your life match what you profess? Do you walk the walk? Each act of sin and disobedience is an act of rebellion and treason against the king of the kingdom. Do you live your life conscious of the fact that Jesus is the king and that you're a subject of his kingdom, that you owe allegiance to him in every aspect of your life? Well, the angel announced that there's going to be this kingdom transfer to the Lord Jesus. In verse 16 and 17, we see a response here from, from, from heaven and from earth. It says, the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you've taken your great power and you have begun to reign. Now, we've seen this scene before or a similar scene right remember back in chapter four in chapter four we see a very similar scene where we got the four creatures that are there and you've got the uh, the four living creatures and you got the 24 elders that are there and the 24 elders bow down and and, and worship and if you remember that passage it's, it's it's chapter four verses eight through eleven if you want to go back and look at it later but in that passage they they worship god as the creator okay and then in chapter five verses 11 through 14 the same thing happens again the elders fall down and worship God, but they worship him then as the Savior. 
They worship him because he's provided salvation. Again, in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, the 24 elders fall down and worship the Lord. Again there, they worship him as the Savior, the one who saved people from every tribe and language and people and, and nation. Here, the elders, who are, who are believers, if you remember from those other passages, the elders are, are believers. Here, they worship God, they worship Jesus as the king. They worship him as creator, and we should worship God as the creator. They worship God as the Savior, and we should worship God as the Savior who saved us from our sins. And they worship God here as the reigning king. And we should worship God as our king as well. Specifically, you see at the end of verse uh, 17 there, they worship him for two reasons. Okay, They worship him, first of all, because he's taken his great power. And they worship him, secondly, because he has begun to reign. And that leads us right into our second point. In verse 18, John says this, And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. What does it look like for Jesus to reign? What does his kingdom look like? What does his reign look like? It looks like his will being done. It looks like his will being done. Our second point is your will be done. Again, we, we mentioned providence before, and we've already seen that, that God's uh, ruling over his creation now in a providential way. His, his will is being done now. He's, he's working things together to accomplish the purposes that he has. But there's a day coming when we will see his will more fully and completely done when Jesus is visibly reigning on his, on his throne. There's a couple of responses here. We, we see the response of, we've already seen the response of the, of the elders, the believers. Now we see the response of the nations. It says the nations were enraged. The nations were enraged. We saw that in Psalm 2 that Pastor Matt read earlier this morning that when, uh, when, when God made that announcement in Psalm 2, that, uh, that the nations were enraged. It says, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. The nations are raging. The kings are setting themselves against the Lord and his, united, but his anointed because they don't want the restrictions of a reigning king. Let us burst our bonds apart. Let us burst their cords off of us. We don't want to be fettered to anything. We want to be the kings of our own lives and the kings of our own kingdom. They're enraged. It says God laughs at them. It doesn't bother him, really. He sits in the heavens. He laughs. He holds them in derision. He scorns at them. He says in verse 6, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You guys do what you want. Y'all fight, whatever you want to do, be enraged. God just laughs at him and says, this is going to have no effect. I've already got my king on my throne. I'm not worried about you all. The nations were enraged. Oftentimes you'll hear people today talking about how we live in the, in the most divided time in history, right? And that may be true, may not be true. I don't know. There's been a lot of division in history. But they say right now we live in the most divided time in, in history, right? They divide 
uh, divide people up politically and divide people up uh, among nationalities and different social ideas about how things should, should, should be run, different economic ideas about how things should be run, different moralities. Supposedly we lived in the mo- we live in the most divided time today, and, and that may be true as far as as far as earthly history goes. But Revelation tells us, and Psalm two tells us that even in all these divisions, all these different people that don't like each other and argue with each other and disagree with each other, all these different little kingdoms are united in their rage against the Lord Jesus. United in their treason and rebellion against Him, and God says, "I've set my king on my on, on my throne." He laughs at him, holds him in derision. In verse 18 here, there, there are two aspects of God's will that are, that are highlighted. The first one is God's will toward those who reject his kingdom. He says in verse 18, the nations were enraged and your wrath came. And the, and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to, uh, down at the bottom there, uh, to destroy those who destroy the earth. God is going to judge sin, and God is going to judge sinners who refuse to repent and turn and submit to his reign. Sometimes we may be uncomfortable talking about this or thinking about this. If you want to get more comfortable with it, we're going to spend the whole next four weeks talking about hell on Sunday nights. Come back for that. Sometimes we feel uncomfortable talking about God judging or talking about God having wrath or talking about God sending people to hell as a consequence for their sin. But listen to what a few people say. This is a, 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 a British guy named N.T. Wright. He says, the, Bible, the biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as good. God has wrath because he's good. He says he's wise and he's the loving creator who hates, yes, hates and hates relentlessly anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation. And in particular, anything that does damage to his image-bearing creatures. N.T. Wright says that God hates sin and has wrath towards sin because he loves his creation and he loves his people. And so he hates anything that comes against that. He hates anything that does damage to that. Ian Paul says, God's wrath is his steadfast opposition to sin. Another commentator says that God's wrath is God's fury towards sin. God's going to destroy those who destroy. He's going to judge all those who oppose him and bring damage upon his creation and his people. Whatever evil you can think of that's ever been done to you, rest assured it will be punished. Justice will be done. You can trust that God will do what's right and make it right. His will is exercised against those who are against him, but his will is also exercised toward those who embrace his kingdom rule. He also speaks of rewards in verse 18, rewards for for God's servants and his prophets and his saints and those who fear his name. Now, these may be different groups, right? We may, we may can separate the prophets out from the servants and the, and the servants out from, from the saints and from those who fear his name, but, but I, don't, I don't think so. I think, I think these are all just four different ways of referring to believers, the same group of people. So how is God's will toward believers going to be done? 
It says those who follow Jesus and submit to his rule will be rewarded. Look, look quickly back to Revelation chapter 2. Remember these letters that Jesus dictated to the churches? Look at verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. He says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Look at verse 10. He who has an ear, let him hear, or sorry, verse 10. Uh, uh, those who are faithful until death, I will give you the crown of life. Look at verse 17. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. We look at the other letters as well. There's these rewards that are, that are promised, and God's going to give them. Now, notice he says he's going to give them to both the small and the great. That's such a great phrase. He's going to give these rewards to both the small and the great. Those who are great in the kingdom and those who are small in the kingdom. Right? You guys know Billy Graham? Heard that name before? Y'all know who Billy Graham is? Great in the kingdom, right? Do you know Mordecai Ham? Ever heard of that name, Mordecai Ham? He's the guy that the Lord used to lead Billy Graham to Christ. These rewards are given to the great and to the small. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, right? He was converted by a, a, some unknown guest preacher that filled in when the other preacher couldn't get to church because it was too snowy outside. Nobody even knows his name, right? What about Miguel? Y'all don't know him. He's a farmer and a pastor uh, among the Tarahumara people in, in, in Mexico. The world has never heard his name before, doesn't know his name, but the Lord Jesus knows his name. And he'll be rewarded. Think of the person that led you to Christ. Think of, y'all probably didn't even know this, but think about the deacons who were out picking up trash in our parking lot this morning so that we could have a nice place for, for worship this morning. Both the small and the great. Countless unknown pastors and deacons and members of countless unknown churches around the world who are preaching the gospel, discipling believers, serving their community, their people, all have a place and a role in the kingdom of God. Finally, in verse 19, we see the result of this. Verse 19 says, And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and earthquakes and a great hailstorm. At the end, God will be fully revealed, and all will see his greatness. Hallowed will be his name. The temple will be opened. The ark will be revealed. This is symbolic language for, for uh, access to God. We will have access to God, full access to God. God will be with his people. It will be fully available to us, just like in the Garden of Eden. He mentions here the ark of the covenant. You may remember what that is. This was in the Old Testament. They built this as part of the tabernacle it was just a wooden box and it had gold leaf on it overlaid in gold and it was in the holy of holies the centermost place of the temple and this is where god's uh presence dwelt among the people okay there were three things inside of it uh there was uh, uh, uh the broken ten commandments a pot of manna and aaron's rod that that sprouted okay and so one commentator i thought this was really good one commentator um kind of explained what those things represent so the broken, and they all represent two things. They have kind of a double meaning. The broken Ten Commandments are there as a reminder of the people's disobedience and defiance against God's rule. 
The pot of manna was there as a reminder to the people that they didn't trust God. And they tried to find other ways to gather more food than was needed. And they complained about the way that God provided for them. Aaron's rod was a reminder of how the people had turned against God's leadership and how they tried to install their own instead. But also Aaron's rod is a reminder to us of God's provision for his priests and for the sacrificial system that atoned for the people's sin so they could have access for God. The pot of manna also was a reminder of God's love and care for his people and his provision for, for what they needed, even when they rebelled and complained against the way he gave it to them. The broken Ten Commandments is also a reminder that God had chose his people not based on their obedience, but based on his love for them. And finally, the, the, the lid of the ark was made of pure gold. It was a wooden box, gold, gold uh, covered in gold, but the lid was made of pure gold, and the lid was called the mercy seat, because the lid is where the priest would go in every year and offer the sacrifice of atonement on top of the ark, on that, on that mercy seat. And that's where the sins of the people would be covered over so that they could have access to God and God could have access to them. And now we see this appearing again as a reminder to us that we have the same access by this same grace. God's wrath is coming against those who refuse to enter his kingdom, those who continue to rebel against him and rejoice in their sin. But the truth is there's wrath against the sins of those of us who have entered his kingdom as well. All sin will be punished. Perfect justice will be done. The only question is, who will bear the punishment for our sin? The perfect God-man Jesus has suffered for sin and borne the wrath that we deserve. Will you repent of your sin and receive his mercy? Or will you hold tight to your sins, continue to try to rule your own life, and face a judgment on your own. It's also true that there are only two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world, ruled by the prince of this age, or the kingdom of God, ruled by his Christ, our Savior, the prince of princes and the king of kings. So ask again, which kingdom are you a part of? Which kingdom are you in? If you find yourself trying to be your own king and trying to rule your own life instead of bowing to the king of kings, following his rule over you, there's time for you to switch sides. Even today, you can turn from your sins. You can declare your allegiance to Christ and he will receive you. He will have mercy on you. He will forgive you. He will make you a subject of his kingdom. If you're in Christ's kingdom, how does that affect how you live? How does it affect how you pray? Do you pray for God's kingdom to come? Do you pray for his will to be done? Do you pray for his name to be hallowed and glorified? 